We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm going to be interviewed for my dissertation research on linguistic prehistory in this next episode. And it's a rather wild one. You have to tune in and listen because we cover a lot of territory in a singular shot. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. It is once again the Chris and Dr. Allen show. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. How are you? Good, Wonderful good. to hear from now. Where where in the world is Chris Webster? Well, we are back in well our homeland, so to speak, Reno, Nevada. Technically, Minden, oh. south of Reno, but we're back <laughs> for a week, just uh-huh. kind of recharging, hitting up some doctor's appointments, some dentist appointments because we've been uh-huh. gone almost a year. Oh yeah. Uh, before we before we head into about two and a half months of archaeological field work starting next weekend. So wow, yeah, and and, and usually I'm stationary, but I'm going to be uh, leaving for Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. Going down to the borderlands in San Antonio, mm-hmm. Austin, and also Del Rio, which is just a few miles north of the Mexican border, maybe lopping over to uh, Mexico briefly. And then uh, I'll be gone for about a week to 10 days. Then I have to go up to Oregon for over a week. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be mobile. Yeah. And listeners of the podcast, as, as with all mobile exploits, sometimes you have internet and sometimes you do not. So Alan's going to bring his uh, equipment with him, but there's a chance we may skip an episode or two in the next few weeks in, uh, and, then, and then we'll make up for it later. So, But yeah. we just stay flexible and that's how it goes. 
So fantastic. All right. So what are we talking about today? We continue to press towards the mark <laughs> of the high calling <laughs> of That's the right. uh, archaeology <laughs> podcast network, as it, as it were, to coin a phrase. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's been since this is the 41st episode and an important benchmark yeah. in my personal and professional development, I want to uh, really return to one of the most important personal benchmarks I did was complete my PhD dissertation and have it mm-hmm. uh, published by the Matarango Museum. And what's really surprising interest is I rarely, if ever, have uh, talked about it on a podcast in terms of explaining and discussing the nature of that research and the study, the conclusions, the data. And what's of great interest is it it uh, interlinks much of what we have discussed over the last 40 episodes into a uh, mm-hmm. singular study. It's a study in linguistic prehistory, and that is a study of looking at comparative linguistics, but also examining some of the hypotheses regarding the uh, population movements and the development of the various indigenous groups in Eastern California or the Southwestern corner of the Great Basin, which of course is something near and dear to all of our hearts, isn't it? That's right. That's right. And and let's unpack some of this as we go along. Uh, for those that may not be familiar, you mentioned comparative linguistics. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, linguists have the possibility or the potential with a certain kind of methodology of Mm -hmm. unpacking language. And what they do is evaluate a basic vocabulary and then classify these languages according to linguistic families, branches, linguistic stocks, and they examine their affinity, their similarity to one another. Mm -hmm. And They call it uh, comparative linguistics. They call it historical linguistics. And there is a means of dating, believe it or not, the divergence times of these languages using what they call lexico-statistical dating, or there's other names for it. But it really just looks at the a basic word list and compares the, the changes in that from group to group. And then they mm-hmm. estimate back how long those two groups have diverged from one another. And as it appears, uh, one of the most remarkable outdoor laboratories is the Far West, because many of the languages throughout the Far West are all related. One group is called the Numic or Numic, and that's a branch of Uto-Aztecan. And there are other languages nearby that are also of Uto-Aztecan stock. And what's uh, fascinating is the uh, proto-Numic homeland, or the area where they think this branch of Desert West language groups and peoples developed from, is right smack dab in the center of the uh, southwestern Mm -hmm. corner of the Great Basin, right around the end of the far southern Sierra, where the western Mojave meets the Tehachapi Mountains. And uh, that's literally a stone's throw away from my home here in Bakersfield. So for that reason, amongst others, they also believe that the proto-Uto-Aztecan homeland, one of the places where 
the broader Udo-Aztecan stock developed many thousands of years ago, literally probably five, six, seven thousand years ago, was in that mm-hmm. same general area. So linguists have studied, they try to find uh, basic words, but they also look at the flora and fauna, the animals and plants, and they try to figure out what areas the, the particular language may have originated in. And then they also hmm. look back using their clock. This was all pioneered originally with the language group of Indo-European, and they mm-hmm. worked it out to great extent. Then they took those same strategies and used them for North American languages. Catherine Fowler, who is a professor and also a, a doctor of anthropology, is probably one of the most famous linguists that have uh, pioneered this information regarding the uh, Great Basin, the Far West, and some of the hypotheses regarding both Numic and Uto-Aztecan languages. So to put it mildly, if you, if you look just in Eastern California, there's a place where you can find almost five different languages spoken within like 50 miles of one another, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And they're all packed in the corner of this Great Basin area. And it appears that that was the area in which these language groups were in union probably a thousand to two thousand years ago. Okay. And it's right there at the foot of the eastern skirt of the Sierras, not far from the Owens Valley and not far from a place called Ridgecrest or Tehachapi or mm-hmm. even Bishop, California. You know, just to put this in a frame of reference that people might understand, it's interesting to me that you can basically walk back languages. Like we look at languages that we have, because we don't know that Native Americans did not have a written language, right? Right. You know, I mean, unlike some other societies, and there are there are some like down in Mexico and Central America, there are some, I guess, written languages in the form of symbols and things like that. But Native Americans in general did not have a written language. So how do we know what their language looked like? you know, a thousand years ago, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, well, we walk it back just like we would do anatomical evolution. We take two different things and we walk it back like humans and chimpanzees. Humans did not come from chimpanzees, but we have a common ancestor. And if you look at the features of evolution and go back, you can find a common ancestor that spawned both lines. And that's what we do with linguistic evolution, basically. you You look at the anatomical details of a language and you deconstruct yeah. it and you're comparing yeah. more morphemes and words so that we can reconstruct the timing and direction of population movements. Mm-hmm. And then the archaeologists compare their research and try to explain those patterns of population movement and replacement by examining those in terms of environmental change, uh, sociocultural patterns, movements, technological innovation, etc. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Just yeah, and kind of a side, I guess, discipline to all this is some people call it like place name studies and things like that. When you look yes. at the original, by original I mean like contact era place names that Native Americans had for things like mountains and lakes and rivers and regions and things like that. 
And you can you can almost get a sense of how long it's really been in their culture because that name probably hasn't changed very much. But if you can tie that name to the linguistic history, you can get a sense of how long it's been important to them and and how long ago it was it was actually named and and really what it means to them. So it's all just fascinating. You can do this just from language. And part of that is called ethnogeography. And so the ethnogeography yeah. is in fact the taxonomic statements of these mm-hmm. landforms, the springs, the mountains, the canyons, the valley systems in the native language, and then looking at the native language, identifying what those particular terms may mean, mm-hmm. and then how they might be related to or exotic for that particular language. Because we can tell often if those words are borrowed or if they're right. part of the indigenous language. An example is amongst the Southern Paiute speakers, the group called the Kauaisu, or their own personal name for themselves is Nuwa or Nuua, and they lived mm-hmm. in the Tachapi Mountains in the Western Mojave Desert. Well, for the longest time in the literature, we believe that they were just uh, living, living in their homeland and their territory was basically the Tachapi Mountains. Well, what we found mm-hmm. out later was that there was a whole branch of that language group, of that ethnic, ethnolinguistic group that lived in the desert. Okay. Now, they were called the desert branch of the Kauaisu. Now, that desert branch of the Kauaisu turns out to be older than probably the mountain group. And the reason we believe that is because the mountain group, when it moved in, had to borrow a term from the nearby Takik, which is a branch of Numic, the Serrano, to name black oaks. <laughs> so this huge black oak that was very popular as a staple food, mm-hmm. the acorns, they didn't have a name for it because they didn't have black oaks in the <laughs> desert. So they had to borrow the name from the Serrano and they used a different term. And it stands out very unusual because it has a whole different way of sort of looking and its suffix and infix. <laughs> and so we know that they had to borrow the word. So when they came in there, they didn't even know what a black oak was. Wow. There you go. Yeah. So that, that's, that's this sort of information that we can get that comes from studying language. It's, it's as though it's another, it's sort of the archaeology of language. How's that? Well, it's along the same lines of like we had, we had Mexican food the other day and quesadilla. Like we don't have an English word for quesadilla, but literally everybody knows what a quesadilla is, right? I mean, and it's a right. Spanish word that has now basically been brought into English unchanged except for probably pronunciation. And, and, it's, and it's there now in our language. So if somebody were looking at this 500 years from now and they look at that word being used in a text or in a, in a movie yeah. or a video or something like that where English is being spoken – they would just assume that this is an import and that we had some sort of relationship with Spanish speaking peoples and, you know, brought it right into the language. And that's how that happens. It just becomes part of your own language. So, well, I have, I have some jokes, of course, needless to say that talk about all this language, <laughs> this language stuff, but the, uh, the clean version of the joke is um, if you're thinking about a, a citrus plant that we, we all love, what's it called? It has sort of a, a yellow red hue. It's called an orange, right? Mm-hmm. It comes from Mexico. We didn't have any oranges here before, right? So <laughs> when 
when we introduced this exotic plant to the Americas, the word in Spanish is naranja. Mm-hmm. Well, how do we get a naranja out of an orange? Well, people how? can't say an naranja. <laughs> so they turned it into <laughs> orange. <laughs> oh, they my dropped God. the N, right? Yeah. So it's, what is it? It's an orange, right? <laughs> now, the other funny thing is, what do we call that wonderful place we, we love to get our pastrami sandwiches? A deli? That's a delicatessen. What does that mean? Yeah. It's a German word mm. for nice or good eating. Delicatessen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> delicatessen, right? Nice. It's, it's so funny to think about all the words that are imported into our language that come from foreign speech. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we could go on like that forever. Like all the Yiddish yeah. terms we get, fressen and essen. And right. What is it? The the one that um, if you're if you're over the top, right, and you're mm-hmm. someone someone who is a what is they they're a they call it the the chicken fat, but it's but it, that's the word for someone that's over the top in Yiddish, hmm. and we use it in our language. Wow. So anyways, okay. all, all that and much more. <laughs> then, and that brings us back to uh, rock art and language and archaeology. <laughs> and that brings us to a good point to take a break, contemplate these new things that we've learned, and <laughs> <laughs> come back on the other side. Back in a minute. <laughs> Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to episode 41 of the Rock Art Podcast. And we are talking about linguistic prehistory. So in segment one, we had a little bit of a primer on what that actually means and studying linguistics and how we could use that to, I guess, walk back languages and and look at how they've evolved and in turn, find out how people have not only how they were together in the past, but how they diverged and separated and how their languages intermixed later on. So what does this have to do with your dissertation and how did you how did you use this in that like what like 
how does this all fit together? Let me let me jump back because I I didn't didn't provide the the hidden mystery word. It's schmaltz. Schmaltz oh. is chicken fat, and when somebody is over the top, they say, "Well, that guy is too schmaltzy." You know, he's got he's got a lot of schmaltz in him. Well, it's just that's right. chicken fat. That's what it means, chicken fat. So nice. Uh, j- jumping from there, what we're looking at as an example for my dissertation is that in this core area that I talked about in the first part of our discussion, this mm-hmm. southwestern corner of the Great Basin, the eastern Sierra fringe, we see the greatest diversity near the geographic core, or what they call this proto-numic homeland. So the, the linguists who looked at this said, wow, we see a lot of diversity, all these languages, distinctive languages all packed in this one little spot. And all across the entire Great Basin, we're talking about Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Idaho, Oregon, all of these enormous areas there's only examples of dialects of those same languages spoken, mm-hmm. which means there was a very fast, a very quick movement of people outward from this core area across the last centuries. So we have this relative homogeneity over this broad territory occupied by these numic, numic languages and a fan shape of these languages more relating to this little distal language core. And they call that the numic spread. Okay. So what is the numic spread? Well, you know, the joke goes is that, well, the numic spread is pinion butter. Pinion nut butter (laughs) is the the numic spread. (laughs) Somebody needs to market that. That needs to exist. I want to buy it off a shelf. Exactly. The pinion nut butter is the numic spread. (laughs) But independent of that, Using lexico-statistical dating, glottochronology, and this genetic classification system, we put together a language tree and we find out that, for instance, Tabatalabal, which is in the far southern Sierra, is an old language. It looks like the people moved in and just stayed there for a very long Mm. time period and never left. Yet... They're adjacent, their neighbors were recent inhabitants, and there was a, apparently a population turnover relatively late in time. Some people say a thousand, some people say 2,000 years ago, where the individuals moved from that heartland and replaced a more antique or a more ancient ethnolinguistic group which are called the prenomic people. Okay. Some people ab- agree with that. Some people don't. Some people say, well, the nomic have always been here. There's nothing, nothing, no changes in them. And this was a, just a continuous development. Mm-hmm. But the language, the historical linguistics tells a different story. And also people who understand material culture and have studied the types of material culture that are very sensitive to ethnic identification may be a key or a smoking gun to linguistic change and population turnover. Okay. The other element that tells you about prehistoric population movements and population turnover is, of course, 
DNA. Mm -hmm. So only in certain instances are we able to get the DNA and trace the DNA and trace the lineage and then say, aha, this is another group of people and they are overlaid on an earlier entity that is genetically distinct. I want to talk real quick too, because you're talking about when you were talking about the numbing people and how some the numbing speaking people and how, you know, there's groups of people that say, well, they've always been here, that kind of thing. I think we should point out that with the current thinking, the current majority thinking on when the Americas were populated for lack of a better way to say that it's within the last, you know, 12 to 15, 16,000 years, give or take that, you know, we think the, the the latest migration came in. There's theories about earlier migrations that may have failed in different spots, but the latest one that kind of stuck, so to speak, where people spread across both continents, it was, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15,000 years ago. Now, we should assume too, I just want to point this out in, in case I'm wrong in this, but we assume that they came over with at least a spoken language, right? Like whoever Absol- came here oh, oh, ab- at that absolutely. time. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's, that's unequivocal. They had a spoken language. They couldn't have, I mean, they, even if they, they came from Asia, they came from wherever they came with a spoken language and that language evolved here too. Right. And so we get right. the tremendous diversity. Some of the greatest linguistic diversity North of Mexico is mm-hmm. found where? In hmm. California, Here? in yeah. California, there were 90 different languages spoken within the ge- current geographical proclivities Jeez. of California. 90. Now, I got a question for you, and you, maybe your research didn't go back this far, but genetically, we can tie Native Americans, you know, a lot of Native American groups to groups in Asia, right? Because the, the right. Bering Land Bridge, the whole thing, we, we can pretty much say that regardless of where people think other migrations may have happened. There was definitely a migration that came from that part of the world. Yes. Now, using linguistic studies, we've tied genetically Native American ancestors or descendants, I should say, to the Asian descendants over there. But have we tied them linguistically? Because it seems like Native American languages are very different from Asian languages and like Eastern European languages (laughs) today. Right, right. So the the challenge is we, we, we have a hard time getting back that far with languages. If we can get to like 5,000 or even 7,000 years ago, that's about as all we can possibly do. So okay. then everything else is extremely hypothetical and, and very controversial. Mm-hmm. But we do know that it was from Southeast Asia that, in essence, uh, the seeds of Native American population occurred. And there's just no doubt. They've, they've examined that so heavily and they have gotten dna and genetic material mm-hmm. from some of the earliest fossils the uh, hum- you know the actual skeletal remains that we have in north america and those only go back you know the earliest one i think that's even available is is in the 13000 range 12 12 right. 6 to 12 8 so with that information we know for a fact that there is a connection here but the latest understanding is there were multiple entries into the uh, North American continent. There, it could not have happened other, otherwise because the archaeological record is so complex and shows so many different sets of technology at various times. It's highly inconsistent, if you get my drift. Right. 
So in other words, we used to believe that there was a singular emanation of the population, which went down an ice-free corridor, became the Clovis people that were big game hunters, and that uh, everything evolved from that heartland. Well, that kind of fell apart with the pre-Clovis discoveries, and it's (laughs) falling apart even further because they are finding that besides Clovis projectile points or fluted projectile points, there are other lithic traditions that are as old or even older than Clovis that exists, either contemporaneously or earlier. So there's this other Western-stemmed expression as an example in Oregon that goes back Mm -hmm. even 13 and 14,000 years ago that's independent. And we find a different sort of tradition or emanation of flake stone and, and the uh, associated things off the coast of California in the Channel Islands. Yeah. And uh, those places are a long ways away from each other, you know, geographically. They are. And they are. yeah. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting because I feel like, I feel like if we, I mean, we've already taken DNA and we've, we've made a correlation for migration uh, with DNA, but if we could, man, we get to the point where we can take a supercomputer and we can drop in all these linguistic facts that we know, all the projectile point information that we know from Europe, from, you know, Southeast Asia, from Asia, from here uh, in the United States and, and Canada and Mexico and South America, could you imagine the the linkages that could be made, the correlations that could be made Amazing. that our brains just can't suss it out? You know what I mean? It would be no, uh, it would be phenomenal. Yeah. Remember, I gave a I gave a presentation. It was a webinar on the peopling of the Americas. Yes. Yeah. That's on yeah. the that's on the ArcPodNet YouTube channel right now. Yeah. 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 So we began talking about that, but actually, in this podcast, I've never done a peopling of the Americas presentation yet. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting. So anyways, there's there's that as well. Mm-hmm. With respect to the issue of genetics, that has been a a big one for archaeology and also a, a really a game changer I have to say because we've been able to use besides the archaeological material the current descendants, the co- contemporary native people have volunteered to provide their genetic fingerprints and then examine them in terms of what they have to say about the relationships of their ancestors and how they may have uh, moved or Mm -hmm. or be affiliated with one another. Uh, John Johnson had published an article, a pioneering article about that very issue for California. Yeah. Now, besides that, there was another individual that was a genetic archaeologist, a physical anthropologist, and they did a study examining this question of numic spread and numic prehistory. And what and what they learned from the contemporary native people, as well as a, an extensive study of the skeletal remains, is that the contemporary native people that populate the Great Basin... Mm-hmm are different genetically than their ancestors. In other words, there is compelling evidence, which can be brought to bear, that shows the genetic fingerprint for the populations that live there today 
being quite different from those that were there prehistorically. Hmm. And I don't know if you're okay. aware of that or not, but anyways, so right. it was, it was done and analyzed and that was presented in a uh, landmark paper. And they, they, they did that with what they called the frequency of haplogroups and the haplogroups are a genetic classification and they took the Native Americans, they looked at the modern Numic, the northern Uto-Aztecans, they looked at a, a whole sample of ancient material skeletons, they actually had dozens and dozens of them, and found that they were different from the historic population. And, and not, not slightly different, but very different. Hmm. So, the, so both the, the Numic people and the ancient people have a very different set of of correspondences and haplogroups represented and that there appears to be, at least based on this one indicator, a, a true population turnover or population replacement. You know, I feel like websites like uh, 23andMe and stuff like that, what, you know, whatever people think about some of the accuracies of these things, it's got to be like the smoking gun for some of this stuff, right? Uh, just to see how far back we can we can trace some genetic similarities. Because like I said, through voluntary, I guess, sampling from some Native American groups who have said, yeah, let's do this. Uh, yeah. You know, they can see that, like you said, Absolutely. they can see Southeast Asia, Asia, you know, definitely some heritage there. But I was wondering about like Neanderthal DNA too, like because a lot of European descendants have Neanderthal DNA, you know, floating around in their body because we did a lot of mixing <laughs> back in the day. And <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of mixing, right? Well, in, terms of the, in terms of Neanderthals, one of the most amazing things that have been discovered, you know, in the rock art world, is they made paintings. Yeah, Neanderthals, a different species of human, have mm-hmm. been—they've dated paintings to be contemporary yeah. with Neanderthal uh, material culture, and uh, that's rather remarkable. Yeah. And I've never, I'm sure somebody's done it, but I've never seen any like alternative history type fiction where Neanderthals and Homo sapiens both were successful, right? In reality, Homo sapiens basically took over Neanderthal territories and they died out or they subsumed into the Homo sapien lineage. But man, could you imagine if... Well, they used, they used to believe that, but what they actually believe now is that Neanderthals and other subspecies of Homo... Mm-hmm. Interbred, interbred, and yeah. they lasted a lot longer than we can ever imagine. And sort of, we have this polyglot culture that has a lot of different DNA in us, and mm-hmm. we have the ancestry of multiple uh, species as part of our lineage. Right. So, wow. anyways, that's that's yeah. a, a f- another fascinating tale, relate relating directly and indirectly to my sort of my research theme, which is mm-hmm. trying to trace uh, ethno-linguistic groups, ethnic identifications, ethnic groups, to find out what their origin is, what the timing of their initial in-migration might have been, and whether there's a continuity or a discontinuity with respect to their evolution and their cultural mm-hmm. evolution and their presence in a particular territory, if that makes any sense. It does. And with that, we will take our final break and I'll let you take us out, Alan. What do you say? 
Let's go in the flip flop. <laughs> <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the third and final segment of episode 41 of the Rock Art Podcast. And we are, I guess, wrapping up is not really the right word, but wrapping up our discussion of your your dissertation of linguistic prehistory, because I feel like we haven't even really started. And there's uh, so much more that we could talk about because we can't wrap up, you know, an entire dissertation in a single podcast episode anyway, but we are laying some good groundwork here. Yeah. So since we're kind of doing an overview of this and, you know, we mm-hmm. might dive into this in some future episodes... And this is the final segment. So what a uh, dissertation or like any research project or, or even archaeology project starts with questions. It starts with research questions. So we, we've kind of discussed what you were looking for there. So what were your conclusions? What did you end up with after doing this dissertation? It's a, that's a very interesting question because I, I originally developed the dissertation back in the uh, earlier part of my career. And then I took a lengthy vacation for two decades and then went back and redid it. So that's the original conclusion is very different from the revised conclusion. But what I learned was after that 20 year hiatus and synthesizing much of the research that was done in the Eastern California prehistory was that one culture that appeared to have longevity Mm -hmm. linguistically showed the archeological record of continuity. The other showed dramatic discontinuities, both by rock art and archaeological materials. And that was the one that people had hypothesized was Mm. subject to a disruption by the influx of exotic cultures, which appeared to replace an earlier culture. So there was a population replacement in one side and stasis or evolution, or there's a word called autochthonous development, which means in situ development that's been uninterrupted. And so what's fascinating about this is literally they're physically adjacent cultures. Mm-hmm. They're both Udo-Aztecan speakers. They're Udo-Aztecan languages. And they literally were part and parcel of exchanges and probably intermarrying one another. But yet their archaeological record and their rock art record is very, very different. Hmm. Like night and day. And and yeah. and literally that that particular barrier or the particular line that I'd like to follow 
is the crest of the Sierra Nevada. And along yeah. that crest, you can see the differences between a Californian type culture and more of a Great Basin. One's a mountain or riverine culture, and the other is a desert expression. Very okay. different, but yet physically adjacent. Yeah. Contiguous. Right. Side by side. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? Where, where else can we see similarities? We're looking at linguistic similarities here. Where else can we see similarities? Well, they certainly traded with one another. Okay. We yeah. know that for a fact. The mountain group imported amazing amounts of volcanic glass, obsidian, which they used almost exclusively. And that moved mm -hmm. along the western Great Basin up the side of the Sierra Nevadas for 3,000 feet in elevation above the valley floor, sometimes even much higher, then went into the south fork of the Kern River Valley, went, went along the Kern River, dropped on down from the Sierra down into the Central Valley, and then that obsidian mm -hmm. in turn moved into the Yokuts territory around Buena Vista <laughs> Lake and, and into uh, Bakersfield Way, and then kept on going out to the uh, coast range and up to the Channel Islands. Can you imagine wow. that? So you had yeah. this, they call it the Obsidian Trail or the Obsidian Corridor. And I called the Coso people out there in uh, the Western Great Basin, the Black Glass Traders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got yeah. a video on that too, on, on the APN yeah. YouTube channel. Yeah. 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 So they were very similar in some ways. I'm wondering, is this uh, is this so-called Obsidian Trail... Was there an opposite flow going the other direction of yes. shell beads? Yes, there was. Because, yes. yeah, because you find beads all over the place, too, that have been traded extensively from coastal California. The opposite uh, route was the yeah. fa fashioners from the Channel Islands who did what they call olivella beads, those purple, yeah. olive, little small white, white and purple beads that were mm -hmm. viewed as money beads, exchange beads. Mm -hmm for adornment, but also for wealth and display. And those moved from the Channel Islands to the coast and on through the uh, Central Valley, the coast range, through the Sierra Nevadas and off into the Great Basin, across the Great Basin, and into southern Arizona, where we find those beads okay. in enormous amounts, circa 500 BC in southern Arizona. And then we yeah. just talked about a couple episodes ago where those beads were attached to a bighorn sheep headdress there in Utah in the San Rafael mm -hmm. Swell, thousand miles away from where they were manufactured. Jeez. Yeah. Trade trade networks are another thing that, you know, when we feed all this stuff into a supercomputer someday, it's going to spit out this, this wild web of stuff. We just, we just read an article and talked about it on an episode of the archaeology show. I think an article came out in, it was plus one or something like that about two obsidian flakes, smaller flakes like tertiary and, and secondary flake that were found under Lake Huron, one of the great lakes and traced to a source in Oregon. Under. <laughs> wow. You're kidding. Yeah. Now that was before that was when Lake Huron was um receded when the glaciers were wow. were advanced and you know there wasn't as much water there, so there was actually settlements under the water there that they found. But yeah, obsidian from Oregon found under Lake Huron recently. 
And <laughs> I mean, that kind of trade is just phenomenal. It's mind so, blowing, isn't it? It really yeah, is. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you, you, you always hear, and this is really from, you know, the old cowboy movies and stuff like that. You always hear about, you know, Native American societies warring against each other. And I, obviously that happened, right? That definitely happened. But there was also a lot of trade. And just like today, you know, we're, we're at war with half the world half the time, but the other half of the time we're not. And we've got things going on and, and things are happening um, together. And it's, it's this, it's this cycle, you know, and people, I think overall people generally, you know, over the long term, probably get along and trade and realize that their mutual survival is contingent upon, you know, working together. <laughs> but sometimes well, war happens. I'm, I'm, you know? I'm, glad, I'm glad you uh, provided me the perfect segue. So in California, there was a group of native people that specialized in trade. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. And, I, and, I, and I was called in the trader travelers, right? And they were the people that lived along the Colorado River, and they were the Mojave. The Mojave Indians would have what they call Mojave Indian runners. If you've ever seen the Edward Sheriff Curtis photogravures, uh, the most expensive photogravure that they have from that 20-volume set is a woman called Mosa. Mm -hmm. She is a Mojave Indian. Those Mojave Indians... With, with impunity, with me, means they didn't, they were not uh, in any conflict. They would be allowed through every other territory of any other Indian group to travel and trade the goods from the American Southwest through the Colorado River and all the way to the coast amongst the Chumash. And they would take a two-week travel, a trek, in which they would run day and night and have the goods with them that they would trade on the coast. And they had names. They had what they call the Mojave Trail, and they had names Mm -hmm. for various landforms in their own language that were were Mm. different names given by the native groups that inhabited those territories. So we have two sets of, 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 of elements there. And the things that they would trade included, of course, those shell beads, but they also brought uh, cotton blankets from the American Mm -hmm. Southwest. They also brought uh, uh, silver and turquoise and other things that were, were, were rare items. And they would move from the American Southwest all the way to the coast. That's, that's amazing. And we have evidence of that. That's how we know that, right? Right. Yeah. And we also have, you know, ethnographic descriptions of these native people and their trader traveler activities. Yeah. David Earle, who's a a well-known anthropologist and archaeologist, is probably the singular individual that has written more on political geography of California Indians talking about the Mojave, talking about the Chimawavi who occupied the eastern Mojave Desert, and also Mm -hmm. looking at the number of different Indian groups that existed all throughout California and examining their interrelations and how their subsistence settlement, how they're, where they lived and and what they did and what they ate and how that all interrelated to the political machinations in California. Also, Chris White's dissertation 
talks about the political confederations that happened in California where certain Indian groups were aligned with others and how that yeah. they would how they would keep those uh, mechanisms moving and those trade and exchange routes. Most things in California went east-west. And so you can see that in bands when you examine the information, for instance, on the movement of volcanic glass. You can see the bands of volcanic glass, the obsidian trails, as you move north. There's a band of Coso obsidian that goes from the coast to the desert. When you move further north, Coso leaves, and then there's a band of Casa Diablo obsidian that moves next. Mm. And then it's Mono Glass Mountain, etc. Now, it doesn't mean that there's, you know, there's a singular way of doing things, but we find that there's this exchange corridors or trans-Sierran trade, etc., that really help to mobilize and allow the complex hunter-gatherers to exist. So in other words, we have some of the most complex and politically uh, sophisticated cultures in California that were based on hunting and gathering in the world, such wow. as the Chumash, as an example. Yeah. Well, I think um, with that, in the last few minutes here, so, you know, now's the appropriate time to ask on this rock art podcast, with that being your dissertation, how did all this tie into your study of rock art? You know, how can we, how can we use this linguistic prehistory and some of these connections made in the past to help us better understand rock art? Or is that, is that possible? What I found was certain styles, certain methods, certain techniques were consonant or congruent with certain ethnic groups. And that was the case not for hundreds, but thousands of years. So if you mm -hmm. can imagine, if you look at the South Fork Kern River Indians in the far southern Sierras, they didn't manufacture petroglyphs. They only manufactured paintings. And those mm. paintings were predominantly abstract and polychrome. And you see okay. that exclusively in that far southern Sierra area. If you move mm. ever so slightly down into the perimeter of the eastern skirt of the Sierras, no more do you get those paintings. You get a dramatic difference where you get petroglyphs, rock drawings, in a realistic representational fashion. In other words, when you go into the South Fork of the Kern River, okay. you're never going to find a depiction as a painting of a bighorn sheep. Yet if mm. you turn around and go three or four miles to the east, that's all you see is bighorn sheep on the rocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. all over the place. And the, the right. method change, the method changes dramatically. So it yeah. goes from paintings to rock drawings. And I used to think that that was maybe a function of just one having granite, and one having basalt. But that's not true because as you, as you mm. move further north in the Sierra Nevada with granite, they go to town in the northern Sierra doing petroglyphs all over granite. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an <laughs> ethnic identifier. It's not a necessarily a precondition of the canvas, if you get my drift. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, wow. so what I was able to, what I was able to do archaeologically was mm-hmm. find the perimeters, the, the boundaries, the territories of those ethnic entities and superimpose them on the landscape and find that the rock art was correlated both in its location and its character. How's that? That's awesome. That's so crazy. Yeah. I, I wonder with the sheer magnitude and numbers of uh, bighorn sheep displayed on, on rock art of the, you know, the coastal region and the surrounding areas. Yeah. Do you know, and, and a minute and a half left in this podcast is not the right time yeah. to ask this question, but do you know if there's other areas of the country, obviously there's other animals represented in rock art in other areas of the country, but oh, do you know if there's just this sheer density of this type of, animal, not, not bighorn sheep, but other types of animals, the sheer density and, and compactness of my God, look at all these animals over here. You know, this is a whole bunch of elk, for example, in this one area, this was akin to the bighorn sheep down here. They've got elk up here or rabbits over here or something over somewhere else. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that in the, on the plains, they were obsessed with the Buffalo. So you're always going to see bison and bison concentrations and everywhere you look are bison. So right, right. that's the answer there. If you go up to the Northwest coast and you're looking for petroglyphs, they all have salmon. It's <laughs> true. So, yeah. so yeah. part of what we're talking about, and I, I think I alluded to this in one of our earlier podcasts is a concept called the indexical animal. Yes. And the indexical animal is the central hallmark figure within the religious metaphor, the cosmology, the, the, you know, the, the pattern of, ideology for a native group. And that's a whole other story entirely. We'll leave that for the next one. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the one thing that ties all these groups together that they all have snakes, everybody has snakes. Yes. <laughs> it's either, got snakes. it's either they yeah. all have snakes. They either have snakes or squiggly lines are easy to draw. One of those two yes. things. <laughs> yes. But no, but the snake is a, a preternatural creature that shows up uh, all over the place but there's a reason for it. So we'll, huh. we'll, we'll have, we'll have to cover just snakes, snakes, on snakes on, uh, snakes on rocks and snakes on planes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Get your snakes off my rocks. That's right. Get your snakes <laughs> off my rocks. Yeah. Well, God, that's the clean God bless everyone in archeology span podcast land. The rock art podcast continues. Chris, it's always a pleasure. Absolutely, sir. All right. We'll be back next time. Or it might be a little while again if we have internet next week. So we'll play that by ear. But uh, we've got 40 other episodes for you to listen to if you're new to the show. So go check that out at arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Back next time. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.